uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, and uh, we have already looked at uh, uh, characteristics of those who uh, do evil, and uh, God has begun to address them. In uh, verse 4, he says he will stretch out his hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And, and then we looked at three or four uh, of the things that they did. The first thing that he did uh, was call them uh, a remnant of Baal. And uh, we talked about the word picture there. He secondly mentioned they are idolatrous priests. Uh, they bow down on roofs. They made uh, separate shrines on their roofs. And then the last thing we looked at was they swore by the Lord, but they also swore uh, by Milcom, by, by a false god. And uh, that uh, we ended with that, uh, that syncretism, that uh, blending of uh, different gods. In a sense, they were saying, well, we're, we're going to get as many gods as we can to watch over us. And uh, the, the total service of it is uh, uh, false worship. And now the the fifth characteristic is um, uh, found in verse 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or, or inquire of him. And here are people who have turned their back on God. Uh, they've turned their back. They've positively turned away. Uh, but negatively, they did not seek him. And they did not inquire of him. Uh, one of the commentators says, well, the, it's actually the, the second two things come first. Because if you're not seeking the Lord and you're not inquiring of the Lord, pretty soon you're going to turn your back on the Lord. Uh, an active life of uh, prayer and devotion is a core grace. Uh, anybody can come to church, but... Uh, Anybody can't just go into a closet and make themselves pray and make themselves worship God. That's, that's the individual. That's the individual's devotion to the Lord. That's the core grace that maintains seeking the Lord and inquiring after him. Trapp says they've become uh, treacherous backsliders. And it's a shame that in, uh, in my life I've heard these apostates talk and how they talk. And they say, oh, I, I've... I've followed the Lord, but I don't follow Christianity anymore. I, I, I gave that up or I turned away from that uh, as if they uh, were boasting. There is a, a great danger in what God is saying to them because uh, if, you know any, if you know any part of true religion and the facts about it, you have more light than uh, you would otherwise. 2 Peter 2 verse 21 says, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment that was delivered to them. There's greater light of the gospel, the words and the claims of Christ. There, uh, the uh, Jewish nation, the Israelites had greater light than anybody else. Paul says they had the, they had the oracles, they had all these privileges. And to turn from that is is terrible. There's greater danger. There's accountability then for all who turn. And then there's also greater punishment. Some of the striking words of Jesus when he gives a, a woe to Chorazim and Bethsaida, 
he says if the miracles that were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented, but you didn't. Can you imagine that? That's the Lord talking. What does he say? It would be better for stumbling blocks to have. It would be better that somebody ties a, a, a large heavy stone around your neck and throw you in the ocean. Then you should have time in your life to lead other people astray. Basically, basically somehow, somehow hell will be worse for some people than, than for others. That's the point. It would be better if they never heard about Christ. It would be better if they didn't hear about the Holy Commandment. And it, it's, not, it's not one of those things that uh, we have to specul speculate about, right? We don't say, well, how much light did they really have? And, and forget about that. If you've heard the gospel, you're accountable to the gospel. If you've heard about God, you're accountable to God. If you've heard the Ten Commandments, you're accountable to the Ten Commandments. It's, it's not a time to figure out, well, how much before this. Look, what it is, look what's at stake. Barnes says, from the half service, right? They're, they're blending, they're blending the syncretist re religion. The prophet goes on to avowed neglect of God. Now they're saying with a vow, they're, they're avowing, I'm not a Christian. I'm not following God anymore. By such as wholly fall away from him, not serving his will or law before them, but turning away, turning their backs uh, on the Lord. Uh, this uh, not seeking and not requiring is uh, defined as listless and heartless service. The interaction with God is completely gutted of desire, sincerity, and reality. There's no substance to it. There's no substance to uh, them seeking the Lord. And there shouldn't be any comfort to our conscience if we have not turned back, but we serve God with listless and heartless service. We always have to be, in a sense, checking our spiritual pulse and saying, is my devotion out of true desire, sincerity, and reality? So that was the second oracle and those were the initial charges against Israel uh, in verse 4 through 6. And remember, we talked about being in the courtroom with God. And that really is, is what that was like. But you, you're always going to lose being in the courtroom with God. Because he's the prosecutor, he's the witness, he's the judge. He, he's everything. And we can't, we can't win. So under the second oracle, our second main head is the day of the Lord uh, from verse 7 uh, to verse 16. And verse 7 starts with uh, the command, be silent before Yahweh Elohim. In the context, think about all the idolatry that's been mentioned, all the false prophets serving in all those ways all the worship on the rooftops, all this activity going on, all this syncretism, this blended false religion, all the prayerlessness, all the false worship and turning away. And then God comes and says, be silent. You remember when we studied uh, uh, Amos, Amos had those two haunting pictures. The one person goes to a house and he inquires at the house. And he says, how many people were here? And the guy says, I'm the only one left. He's all the way inside. 
and he says, don't say anything, don't mention anything. Don't say anything. The Lord could hear what you're saying. And the next picture, later on at the judgment, it actually says, look at all the dead bodies. And then it says, silence. And God stopped all the idolatry. And he stopped everything by physically having those people killed. We just looked in Habakkuk. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I need to be quiet before God and listen to what God says to me. Uh, not, not be yapping on about uh, what I think religion is and what God does. In the context uh, of Habakkuk's quote, he says before that, what prophet is an idol? What prophet is any false thing? You're going about the same thing, all this activity. But God is in his holy temple. Uh, uh, let all the earth be silent. It's time to be silent and see what Yahweh Elohim is going to do. And then, here's the reason right there in verse 7. For the day of the Lord is near. And, and all our day of the Lord studies uh, come and pour themselves into this, as it were. But uh, Zephaniah is different because he talks about it more than any other prophet. Uh, Joel mentions the day of the Lord more than anybody. Uh, Zephaniah mentions the day more than anybody, and we'll see that in a moment. Uh, we've already seen about the day of the Lord that it's a day that God controls. It is literally the day of the Lord. He knows what day it is. We don't. Uh, secondly, we have seen that it's a day that God acts. So not only does he control it, but it's a day that he acts. The day of the Lord brings about the actions of Yahweh Elohim. Thirdly, we uh, have learned that the, it's a day that people must prepare for. You cannot not prepare for the day of the Lord. That's the idea. The day of the Lord is coming. Yeah. I'm not really going to do anything. No, it, it's a day that we all must prepare for. And then finally, it's a day of the unknown. When is the day of the Lord? Well, you just said God controls it. Well, that is, uh, that's the point. When is it? Uh, many people spend a lot of time with the scriptures and charts and this and that, and they try to predict. Since uh, dispensational teaching came along in the, in the 1800s, there have been more predictions about the end of the world than ever before. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, quadrupled uh, because that, that whole system leads to that. It's all, when did this happen? And when did that happen? How did this figure? And how did that figure? It's just exploded with all these predictions about when the end is going to be. And we've talked about it before. They all have one thing in common. Everybody has been wrong up to this point. But God says it's near. God says it's near. It's not time for me to get out the biblical abacus. It's not time for me to get out the biblical protractor or anything else. My responsibility is to prepare for the day of the Lord. That is the point. He just said, let all the earth be silent. He just said, silence. The day of the Lord is near. We need to be prepared to hear, well, what's going to happen next? So, 
we looked at the command, be silent. We looked at the reason, the day of the Lord. And then uh, we'll see this preparation, his, God's preparatory activity. Uh, one of the writers says this hovers threateningly uh, over the people. It's near, it's impending, and it's close. And this also is a scary picture because the preparation for punishment is a picture of sacrifice. But a lamb or a bull or a goat or a pigeon is not being sacrificed, it's people. God is preparing people uh, to punish. Punished. They sacrifice to false gods all over the place. Now God says uh, he will sacrifice them. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, he said, I will punish. And he lists those uh, that he will punish. A picture uh, of sacrifice. Uh, the proof texts and the similar texts uh, are, are startling. Uh, notice and listen to Isaiah chapter uh, 34 and verse 6. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of the rams. For the Lord Yahweh has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And this is against nations. But God says, I'm holding a sword. It's already blood is dripping off and I'm, I'm executing this sacrifice. Jeremiah 46 and verse 10. Uh, that day is the day of the Lord. The God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. That's the idea, the, the punishment of those who go against God. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God, Yahweh Adonai of hosts, holds a sacrifice in the north country uh, by the river Euphrates. That was a prophecy against uh, Pharaoh Necho, the uh, Pharaoh that... Uh, uh, battled with Josiah, and Josiah was killed. Uh, Ezekiel 39, 17 through 19, uh, God calls all the birds, and, and everything that uh, is going to uh, 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 eat uh, flesh, and says, come around, because I'm going to lay it all out there for you. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and every beast of the field, Assemble and come together from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you, for all the birds and the beasts, as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. That's the picture. And God prepares them for, for the birds. And we've seen that picture before. In 1 Samuel 16, 5, uh, Jesse and his sons are told to consecrate themselves because Samuel's going to come. He's going to pick a king. And they were supposed to be prepared. They were supposed to be ready. They weren't supposed to be ceremonially unclean at all because the prophet was coming. They were going to eat together. And this is exactly what God is saying. I'm preparing a sacrifice and I'm consecrating my guests. And those guests are nations. Those guests are the Israelites. And uh, literally, uh, birds are going to pick their flesh and beasts of the field uh, are going to eat them up. But it's the day of the Lord's sacrifice. There's a specific day. And then in verses 8 through 16 of Zephaniah chapter 1, we see our fourth head 
uh, we've looked at the command, be silent. We've looked at the reason, and we've looked at this uh, uh, preparation for a sacrifice. And then uh, verses 8 through 16 emphasize the day. When is it going to happen? Notice verse 8. On that day, the Lord's sacrifice. Notice uh, verse 9. He says, on that day, I will punish. It's the second time he said, I will punish. And verse 10, on that day, declares Yahweh. And we've, we've seen the strength of that before. You remember, uh, Jeremiah says, declares Yahweh uh, uh, 50-something times, something like that. Uh, and God is trying to get through to everybody. This is really what's going to happen because Yahweh has declared it. Verse 12, note, notice, uh, at that time. Uh, verse 14, notice the great day of Yahweh is uh, near. And uh, verse 15 and 16 continually repeat a day of this, a day of that. So that is the intensity uh, of Zephaniah's look at the day. It's the day of the Lord, but it's also these references where only God controls it. He knows it and we're supposed to get ready. And this is what he's going to do. Uh, uh, in the introduction to the book, the, the one commentator says this is a theme that's preached more consistently by him than any other prophet. And it's because of this, this, this constant saying, this day, this day, this day, this day, this day. But here are the objects of his displeasure. Not only is there the time on that day, but here who is who he's going after. Uh, the officials and the king's sons and, and notice their characteristic and all who array themselves in foreign attire uh, basically it's a attire that's not suitable it's uh, worldly attire it's idolatrous attire it's a false priestly attire uh, it says those who uh, are most inclined to to uh, have raiment and it would show that they worshiped uh, other uh, other things clothed with strange apparel the text says and uh, the, the one of the older writers says these were uh, uh, foppish men uh, a, a fop is somebody that's uh, preoccupied with clothing they thought by dressing up and looking sharp that that was uh, that was something that showed their position or showed this uh, when uh, Jehu is purging uh, Israel in uh, second kings he tells somebody to go in and get all the vestments of those who worship Baal and uh, and he gets rid of all their clothes they were they were uh, Baal priestly clothes they weren't Israel priestly clothes uh, notice notice uh, Jesus's parable in Matthew 22 somebody came into the feast but they they didn't have a wedding garment so clothing is important, but the right clothes. The person needed the righteousness of Christ to be at that feast. And brothers and sisters, we need the righteousness of Christ. Not our Sunday best. Not this is the most expensive tie that I have. I'm told it looks good with this shirt. No, no, no. I need the righteousness of Christ. That's, that's the clothing that I need. Look at the Pharisees. Look what they did. When Jesus uh, uh, speaks to them, he says, you do things to be seen by others. Over and over, he says, that's what their reward was. What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing to make that the end of what you're doing. 
Oh, I just want to be seen. Oh, I'm on TV right now. I just want to be seen. It's an abomination. And what does he say? You made your phylacteries broad. It was a little case that had a strap and there would be verses and things in there and they made them bigger. They would go around and tell people, I'm fasting today. That's what you probably notice. I haven't shaved. I'm fasting. You probably notice I'm sad. I'm fasting. But I have my phylacteries and they're broader than your phylacteries. I made them that way. And Jesus goes on and says, you make your phylacteries broad and your fringes long. Can you imagine that? Oh, look, Gene, I want you to sew these fringes on extra long. When I stand up there, when I go to the marketplace, I want people to see my long fringes. And what does he tell them? You're a brood of vipers. All the show is on the outside, but inwardly you're like dead men's bones are in there. You're like a, you're like a walking grave. William Jenkins says, put sin into its best address, uh, into its best dress, sorry. It is but gilded damnation. Dress up sin the best as you can, Jenkins says. It's just gilded damnation. And, and that's, what, uh, that's what Zephaniah condemns. These rulers and officials and king's sons, these, these gallants, these foppish men who dressed in certain ways, or they, they dressed in uh, idolatrous clothing. And then secondly, everyone who leaps over the threshold. And this is interesting because the, there's only one other verse that talks about this in 1 Samuel 5.5. 5. And this is when uh, uh, Dagon fell down and there was only a torso left. You remember that, right? The pieces were coming off the, the uh, idol. And 1 Samuel 5, 5 says, This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So something, something happened, right? Dagon fell, and every time they would go there, you'd be like, whoa, we got to step over that. Don't step on the threshold. Uh, what is that, though? It's just like a superstition. And as best as any writer can, can point back, this is possibly some adapted and adulterated custom that, uh, that people adopted. There's only one other reference to it. But you understand the practices of false worship. People making signs on themselves. Uh, people doing certain things, bowing down. People who are full of fear and superstition and make up things. Oh, you can't do that. It's Friday, you have to eat certain things. It's certain days, you have to do this. We, we are used to uh, that silly little game. Uh, don't step on a crack. But, but that's, it seems, what God is talking about. And there's only one other reference about people that uh, that didn't cross the threshold. It's possible, it's possible that it's just everybody who crosses a threshold into an idolatrous thing. But the, but the word leaps uh, might dictate to us that what they're doing is making sure they don't touch it. They're, they're uh, leaping uh, over it. So 
the officials and the kings, everyone who leaps over the threshold, and then thirdly and finally, those who fill their master's house uh, with violence and fraud. And uh, our studies in the our studies in the prophets uh, will just uh, uh, will take that and re just be reminded of what we've seen before, because those are common themes: uh, violence and and fraud. And then we come to the cry of distress uh, in verses 10 and 11. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver uh, are, are cut off. So this cry of distress pinpoints places within Jerusalem that the cry will be heard. And that's, that's how close uh, the day of the Lord is coming. And if somebody said people are going to be screaming uh, and uh, wailing at Publix or screaming and wailing at Sonny's, we, we would know exactly where the screaming and the wailing was taking place. That's the point. If, if the day of the Lord came to Titusville, and God said that, you would know exactly where people would be screaming and wailing and crying. That's the point. It's heard throughout Jerusalem. The fish gate, the second quarter, the crash from the hills is possibly the, the trees that are being felled to build the siege works. The, the, the Babylonians would come and the, to build everything to conquer the city. They would be cutting down trees all around. That's possibly uh, what it is. Or just the, the noise of war, this crashing all around. And then there's a, a command, whale inhabitants of the mortar. Uh, some uh, translations say uh, Maktesh, and uh, that's, that's just another place. And uh, it's either the mortar or Maktesh. Uh, the Geneva uh, translates it's a, a low place. It was just a place everybody would know. Yeah, it's over at the Maktesh. There's crying and screaming and, uh, at the mortar. And, and look at all the things that happen. Traders are no more. Those that trade, no more. Those that weigh out silver, they're cut off. God's going to search Jerusalem with lamps. In a sense, it says, he's, I'm going to probe right into the darkness. I'm going to find... I'm going to find out where you are. And then uh, punish uh, complacent men or men who are stagnant in spirit. The, um, the actual uh, uh, Hebrew means a, a thickening on the dregs. It's a, it's a picture of uh, wine in those days where they didn't do all the purification that we did. And the pieces, uh, the pieces in the wine would sink to the bottom. And that would... That would uh, age like the rest of it would just get kind of thick down there. That's that's the the literal uh, thing. Uh, these lethargic people, the commentator says, will not rouse themselves enough to save themselves. Uh, that's the point. There's stagnation of spirit. All this talk doesn't move them. All this talk keeps them like that bottle of wine on their shelf. There's just this stagnant piece of stuff. These stagnant particles in the bottom, that's what they're like. They're not moving. And they're not moving. Notice, here's their example of deceived complacency. 
they say in their hearts, Yahweh will not do good, nor will he do ill. Well, then you can sit around, right? If God's not going to do anything ever, if he can't do anything, just sit around. But they've deceived themselves with those words, haven't they? The, oh, the, the day of the Lord? No. God doesn't do good. He doesn't do ill. Don't you know that? That's false. Uh, that's your heart lying to yourself because you, you, it's right in the context of all the things that God is going to do. He's going to come with a light. And you're saying he's not going to do anything? He's going to come and, and turn the whole place upside down. People in places that you know, like the second quarter or Sonny's or over by the Walmart, are going to be wailing. And you're just, and, and you're just saying, oh, God, God's not going to do anything. Their hard speech is that God doesn't care. He won't or he can't do much in our day and in our world. And there's many, many people that believe that. He goes on to say, finishing up this section, verses 12 and 13, this picture of thickening and on the dregs, this stagnant spirit reminds us Isaiah's ministry. God says, you're going to preach until this destruction comes. And he says, how long? What is your preaching going to do? And God says, you're going to make hearts dull and ears heavy and eyes blind. Well, you can't say, and you can't say, oh, well, that's just that Old Testament. That's that judgment stuff. No, because Isaiah's prophecy is in the first six books of the New Testament. All the Gospels, Acts, and, uh, and Romans have that prophecy. And that was the ministry of Jesus. And that was the ministry of Paul and Peter and Acts. That's what happened. Some were saved, but other people's hearts were made dull, their eyes heavy and their ears, uh, or their eyes blind and their ears heavy. And God continues. Your goods will be plundered. Your houses laid waste. Your buildings won't be inhabited. And you'll plant vineyards, but you'll not drink. And those, all those pictures we've seen before, multiple times we've seen them. So we've looked at the activity of execution. We've seen the time, the objects, the cry. And now finally, we see the day of the Lord amplified in verse 14 and 15, because the words are different than verse 7. Notice that it's the great day of the Lord. And it's not near, but the ESV says it's near and hastening fast. The New American Standard says near and coming very quickly. So now it's just not the day of the Lord. It's the great day of the Lord. Now it's not near, but now it's accelerated. It's coming fast. It amplifies the idea of the day of the Lord in its scope and its urgency. And it's, it's pr pressing on us the necessity, isn't it? The necessity is getting pressed on us even more because now it's hastening. Now it's coming fast and it's the great day of the Lord, not just the day of the Lord, which, which is staggering enough. This sound is bitter. Mighty men 
uh, cry aloud out there, uh, similar to this uh, wailing and doleful and bitter crying that we've seen before. Uh, mighty men are overtaken with, with cries. Can you imagine what the, regular, what the regular populace is doing? We've seen that before. God takes the mightiest people and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them down till they're weeping and crying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them down the, till their knees are shaken and there's no spirit left in it. The mighty people. A guy who weeks ago was known for his exploits in battle. A mighty soldier. I'll face any enemy. I'll face anybody. And now what is he doing? He's crying. He's, he's uh, moaning. And then there's uh, six results of the day of the Lord in verses 15 and 16. And here it's repeated. A day of, a day of, a day of, a day of. So it's the, it's the great day of the Lord. It's hastening fast. And here's the day of. Here's where uh, they say, Zephaniah speaks of it more than anybody else. A day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness, a trumpet blast and battle cry, uh, fortified cities, uh, lofty battlements, uh, everything, uh, it's all against those. And, and that's the finish of it against Jerusalem. And now in verses 17 and 18, God turns against all mankind once again. The prophecies against the world are bracketed. We saw that in uh, verses uh, uh, 2 and 3. It's all against the world and mankind. In verse uh, 17 and 18, it's all the inhabitants of the earth or mankind. It's another picture of judgment. The judgments... Bring distress on mankind. The reasons, they'll, well, he says the result is they're going to walk like the blind. And uh, Isaiah 59, 9 and 10 has that physical picture of spiritual blindness too. And verse 17, they've sinned against the Lord. It's a day of the wrath of the Lord. They've sinned against Yahweh and it's a day of wrath. Uh, their blood is going to be poured out like dust. Their flesh uh, poured out like dung. Their silver and gold won't deliver them. Notice, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. It's, it's judgment day. And he started with judgment day in the beginning, and he comes to this. The future consumption uh, of all the earth. Uh, uh, we see pictures in uh, Second Peter and, uh, and, and Revelation. Uh, Revelation uh, 18 records the lament uh, concerning Babylon the Great. And we just saw that God says the day of the Lord is hastening. And the people in Revelation, they saw how fast it happened also. Revelation 17 the prostitute and the beast are, are going to be judged. Revelation 18.9, it talks about the smoke of her burning, right? Don't remember, forget about the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, because what you see in Revelation makes what you see in the minor prophets look small. The smoke of her burning. What is God going to do with all the world systems? He's going to burn it all up. 
But the people, the men, they say in a single hour, your judgment has come, Revelation 18.10. Revelation 18.7, for in a single hour, all the wealth has been laid waste. The day of the Lord is hastening fast. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste, verse 19. How quickly is it going to happen? How quickly does Revelation say that all the world system is going to be taken up and judged by God? It says the people, the people will lament because they said it only took an hour. Well, Peter says it's going to take faster than that. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, he says, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Uh, all gone in an instant. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. He uses the word dissolved three times, verse 10, 11, and 12 of 2 Peter chapter 3. It's important repetition. It's going to happen fast and it's going to be comprehensive. Dissolved, okay? Think of everything you can see. Get your telescope out and look as far as you can and see the stars and just think, dissolved, dissolved, dissolved. That's what Peter says. But then come his senses. And this, this is what is for us. Since everything is going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's the question. That's the question for us. That's the question for the people in Zephaniah's day. And we're going to see it soon. He's going to say, it's time to repent. Peter said, the day of the Lord's coming like a thief. Oh, I'll plan on that. Jesus says, no, you can't plan on that. You have to stay up all night. Then you're protected. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And uh, we had a discussion with the, with the family that just visit, visited. The, they, they said, what's the difference? That's a lot. Uh, to, to demonstrate holiness and godliness, that's a lot. And you have to think through it. Positive holiness and positive godliness. That's what we should be. But then there's another thing about our posture, because the word waiting is used three times as well. And Peter says, waiting, waiting for it to happen, waiting for Christ to come back. And he ends by saying, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Oh, that's a lot. Oh, that's a lot for, for you to require. Holiness and godliness and be without blemish or spot. The day, it's the day of the Lord, brethren. It's the great day of the Lord, and it's hastening fast. Peter's point is only scoffers, only scoffers don't get the picture, right? Hey, where's your Savior? I thought he was coming back, right? God doesn't count time like they count time. But what should we do? All lives of holiness and godness, godliness be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And that's our goal. And in verse 12, in verse 13, in verse 14, he says, what is our posture? Waiting, waiting, waiting. I want to see my Savior. I don't want to see the whole universe dissolved in front of me, but I want to see my Savior. That's what I'm waiting for. It's his coming, but it manifests itself in all those other things. It manifests itself in the lament of all the unbelievers who were left and said, where's our world system? 
Where did Babylon go? Where's the beast? Where's the prostitute? In an hour, God took it apart. But chapter 19, everybody rejoices because God has put every enemy down. And it's a promise that's fulfilled, not to us, but to the Lord Jesus Christ, because God tells him over and over, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus will reign ultimately forever, and we'll see it and we'll be there if we believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the mercies that are even found in these strands of judgment, these forceful words that would cause us to be even agitated in our spirits, but we're thankful that they are warning us to flee from the wrath to come and flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that each of us would make sure, as Peter says, make your calling and election sure that we have the right garments on even today, the very righteousness of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.